Welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Micro. As always, I hope you had a great week. And remember, you know, you can always find Let's Talk Micro on any podcast platform. And on social media, you can find me on Instagram, um, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube. On Twitter, Let's Talk Micro 1. The other platforms as Let's Talk Micro. Any questions, any feedback, you can always send me an email at letstalkmicro at outlook.com. So I've been saying, you know, in previous episodes, as I'm talking, you know, to stay tuned. Good things are coming your way. And today, it's one of those days, you know. I'm very excited about this, you know, it's gonna about this episode and future ones. So today with me, you know, she's been a guest before and this episode and the future ones, she's going to be co-hosting with me. So, you, you know, you listen to her in many episodes. She's a medical science liaison. Her name is Dr. Andrea Princey. And I am Luz Plaza, your host. Um, Dr. Princey, welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Hi, Luis. I'm so excited about our new little adventure together. I think this is going to be fun. I completely agree. Yes, you know, welcome. It's always great having you and now doing this series, which I'm going to be telling the, the listeners in a minute. Uh, but so this is going to be for you listeners out there. This is going to be a sub series. So normally, you know, I publish every week. So every now and then you're going to get an episode and this is going to be a sub series about antimicrobial resistance or AMR. You know, in the spirit of Let's Talk Micro, we're really going to be breaking it down. You know, we'll talk about AMR, we'll break down the antibiotics, we'll talk about resistance mechanisms, and more. So, uh, Andrea, where, where did this idea come from? You know, Luis, as we were working through some previous episodes, we talked about offline a little bit about how important discussions around antimicrobial resistance are. I and mean, we talked about this during the Breakpoints episode and the Biofilm episode, and it's such a big issue uh, in the world today. But we talked a lot about how clinical laboratory scientists often find this topic to be really, really challenging, right? Like I know uh, when I learned clinical micro and then when I was training uh, medical laboratory scientists later in my career, uh, antimicrobial susceptibility testing and AMR was by far the hardest topic uh, for folks to grasp. I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, we learn a lot about testing methodologies, but we don't always learn a lot about the drugs themselves, how they're used clinically, when a clinician may choose to use one drug over another, and then resistance mechanisms. Uh, we learned some of them, but they're getting really, really complicated. It's getting really complex. And so I think that doing this subseries is going to be a really awesome way uh, to take a deep dive on antimicrobial resistance, all the mechanisms they're in, things about drugs, drug classes, uh, for the medical laboratory scientist, but of course, for anyone in the clinical community that wants to listen, um, I think the idea would be to just get really get in there, uh, deep dive on these topics and um, just make it make more sense, you know, for all of us. And I think, Louise, you had mentioned, too, that I don't know if you've had any of these struggles yourself. You know, you're a laboratory scientist. Have you felt that this is a challenging topic for you and your work? Uh, yes, you know, indeed, definitely, it definitely is, and 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 yeah, we have talked about this, and it's something, you know, it's it's one of the points of of having less talk micro, you know, it's about sometimes, you know, it's there's so much information, you're trying to grasp everything, learn everything, and then just 
so with this, you know, I hope to make things easier for everyone. You know, you have it in a nice, neat little place where you can listen to it as many times. So that's what, you know, one of the things that led me to this, because of, yeah, in my career, you know, I just I, I work in small labs, large labs. It is a lot of information and maybe you might have less volume, less organisms, but you still have to to know this. And then you start thinking that when you are, you know, as a medical lab scientist, you know, you go through school and then, you know, it's two years. But in addition to micro, you know, you're doing other subjects, too. And you're doing clinicals and maybe you spend three or four weeks there. So from the get go, you're barely touching on it. So that's that's the first thing, you know, right? So you come out of a, a med tech program and you come out understanding, yeah, you have a good grasp of your of your major players, let's say, you know, your major gram positive and your gram negative. But when it comes to you know susceptibilities, yeah, you you start learning on the job. And then you maybe train three or four weeks and then you get signed off. You know, it's very typical in the lab like this. And that doesn't mean you know everything. I mean, it just means that you can get through your work, you know, in a comfortable manner of um, just without making any, you know, any mistakes, you can, you know, work on your own, but still it is, it is a topic. And then, yeah, so you, you sit in there and then when things there, there are many things. And then I, I have encountered this, right. The first day of the bench, you know, you're alone and then you start getting these flags. Okay. What do I do? You know, it's always nice, right. When the, when the susceptibilities cross over, everything is good to go. But then, you know, let's say when your Vitek is flying in something, okay, what do I do? You know, what is this mechanism? There are so many, you know, drugs classes, you know, when you call MDR, okay, what's, you know, how many classes, what's this class? Um, and that's without touching about the, the behind, you know, why, how does the drug work? You know, it's just, it's a lot of information and it just takes a long time. And, uh, a long time and a lot of repetition for you to get comfortable with it. Yeah. And I think, I don't know, as we work through these episodes, I think having some of our, maybe our guests be, you know, clinical, you know, clinicians in the field uh, that have a, a clinical perspective, that's always really helpful too. I think it helps you tie together what you're doing in the lab with how it impacts a patient when you've got the clinician's point of view, especially on something like AMR or, you know, various antimicrobials and how they work, uh, things like that. So I'm really excited. I, I hope it'll be helpful. And I, you know, I think that the laboratory, the clinical laboratory is changing a lot. We see the roles of microbiologists are, are turn are shaping up to be a bit different than maybe before. And so I think there's a expectation for a microbiologist to have some of this knowledge and be able to have a, a conversation with clinicians and, um, you know, do a lot of this more complex AST type stuff in the lab. So Hopefully, hopefully it'll be helpful. Yeah, I agree with you. It's it's definitely yeah, it's it's gonna be helpful, and and I hope the the audience likes it. And it just yeah, ultimately, all these things that you learn, you know, they're gonna make you better at your job. It's just it's one of those things. So, and as microbiologists, you know, we're in a position where you know, in the clinical microbiology, especially, we're in a position where you, we're definitely the result, you know, the information we're putting out there, it's, it's, it's affecting our patients. So it's definitely great to get educated and learn it. And definitely to learn also from the aspect, you know, what happens beyond with the results that we put out there, you know, how do they get interpreted from the pharmacy point of view, from the physician point of view. So I'm very excited and definitely 
So what I think what we're going to be doing is, like I mentioned on the intro, we're going to be doing, it's going to be sporadically, maybe every month or month-ish, depending. Um, and I'll let the audience know ahead of time. So it's going to be an AMR sub-series. And then, so today we're going to do an overview. And then on subsequent episodes, we're going to start by uh, working the classes of antibiotics. So you, the audience, can understand, you know, what's the class, you know, how do they work, mechanism of action. So that is that is the plan. And then uh, we're going to have some guests that are you know, from different areas, like from pharmacy. So they're going to bring more information and shedding more light on this. Okay, so uh, Andrea, let's go ahead and uh, for the audience, you know, let's, can you give some some background statistics? Yeah, I think when we talk about something this complex, I think, uh, you know, Luis, I, I love to talk about history, right? So history of microbiology, I think it, it's really important to understand where we've come from and how we got to where we are today. And the story of antimicrobial resistance is very interesting and kind of fun. Um, it, it's really loaded with all sorts of funny little um, elements. And so I'll, I'm just going to talk about the story of how essentially penicillin came to be, but then touch on uh, development of other antimicrobials, how resistance kind of came into the picture, and then a, a little bit more about where we are now. Um, I think some folks are probably familiar uh, with the story of Alexander Fleming, but uh, I will just start there. As to Dr. Alexander Fleming, you know, back in the day, we're talking like 40s earlier here, where he was working on uh, cultures of Staphylococcus aureus in his laboratory. He'd been growing up these cultures, um, studying the bug. A lot of people were dying from infections with staph at the time. And he decided to go on vacation and left his plates with his lab assistant at the time, came back from vacation and found that some of his plates had been contaminated uh, with a fungus. And everywhere this mold was growing on the plate, the bacteria would not grow. So there was kind of this zone of inhibition around this mold. And he thought, wow, this is interesting. It seems like something in this mold is killing uh, the bacteria. And so he the, he really was the, the one that discovered uh, penicillin because it came from penicillium mold. Uh, but it, I, you don't hear a lot about the story of what happened after that. He, he was the first one to make this hypothesis and start investigating it. But he actually had a really hard time purifying uh, penicillin from the mold. And so at the time he was calling it mold juice. <laughs> he was trying to extract it and use it and demonstrate uh, that it really worked, but it was, he was having a really hard time um, demonstrating that it was, it was working the way he thought it was. And he essentially gave up. And so a little further down the road, uh, there were uh, two individuals named Howard Flory and Ernst Chain who found Fleming's research and assembled a team of scientists to work solely on what they called the penicillin project. And so they extracted enough of uh, this compound or penicillin to start animal trials. And they were able to infect mice with streptococcus uh, bacteria. And there were, I think there were eight in total, four that were given penicillin survived and the four that were not given penicillin died. And they said, wow, this looks okay. This looks like this really, really works. And so they put this group of uh, women to work known as the penicillin girls, which if this is not a movie, there probably should be one. I, I want to know more about them. Uh, they were employed to tend to fermenting broth and, and basically farm a few precious milligrams of penicillin from this broth every week. So at this point, they're just getting very little uh, out of the mold that they're growing. They're getting very little penicillin. 
And so more and more work uh, starts to happen with this. People are trying to figure out how to make this a more efficient process. They come up with uh, the Department of Agriculture uh, in Peoria, Illinois, comes up with some new fermentation methods, new techniques that help purify penicillin a little more efficiently. And, you know, this is working, but it's still not that fast. And then very serendipitously, they put out a call for like a, a global mold search. <laughs> so they're looking for a mold or penicillin uh, or penicillium mold that will produce more penicillin than what they'd gotten so far. Uh, and soil samples were sent in from all over the place. Nothing was really taking off until a woman named Mary Hunt, who was an assistant at the Peoria lab, found a rotting cantaloupe at a market and it had penicillium on it. And they, they played with this mold and found that it produced six times more penicillin than Fleming's original strain. And so they were able to start uh, getting more uh, penicillin out of this new batch and ferment this a little more readily. And actually, U.S. pharmaceutical companies were not that excited about committing to large-scale penicillin production. And it was actually World War II uh, that really created this demand for penicillin. They, I think they realized that more folks were probably dying from infection in the field than they were combat. And if they didn't do something uh, to help fight off infection, they were probably going to lose a lot of soldiers and potentially lose the war. So that really um, created some skyrocketing interest in the development of penicillin. And so the U.S. made sure they had sufficient penicillin stocks to uh, satisfy the demands of the armed forces in the U.S. as well as their allies throughout the war. So I think that that's a very interesting start. Um, that's the background story on penicillin, but I would say it's important to know I, sulfonamide actually came first. Um, I don't know. I couldn't tell you exactly how much uh, time or how many years or months before uh, the discovery of penicillin, uh, but sulfonamide was first and resistance developed to that fairly quickly. And then we also saw uh, resistance to penicillin develop very quickly as well. In fact, I think there was resistance documented before penicillin ever uh, was on the market for clinical use. And that's a really important point uh, because I think sometimes people don't realize that resistance or you know, antibiotic resistance occurs naturally in these organisms, um, especially if the antimicrobials or the, the antibiotics that are being produced and are, are coming from nature. Um, so like from a mold, for example, we see organisms developing resistance mechanisms in nature all the time. Uh, we really just help speed it up with excessive antimicrobial use. And so this is what we saw with penicillin resistance. Um, it was immediately pretty much that there was resistance to the original penicillin. And then methicillin was developed or the second uh, second group of beta-lactamase resistant beta-lactams were developed to try to avoid uh, this resistance mechanism that had been developed uh, against penicillin. And that lasted for a little while, but then staphylococcus got smart again and uh, developed additional mutations and things. And that led to what we know now as methicillin-resistant staphylococcus aureus, which is um, typically due to a uh, mutation in the penicillin-binding protein uh, 2. So these things just happen very quickly, um, developed pretty quickly over time. And I think that uh, it's a good example of how readily the organisms can, can make these changes. Um, we've seen an explosion of resistance mechanisms in other organisms over a pretty short amount of time. Um, 
you know, for example, the methicillin resistance that we see in Staph aureus is, is when an organism's acquired the MEK-A gene, which encodes for the penicillin uh, binding protein 2A, uh, which enables the bacteria to sustain cell wall synthesis when other PBPs are inhibited by beta-lactam antibiotics. So basically when a, a beta-lactam comes in and, and tries to hook to a penicillin binding protein, it can no longer do that if those binding proteins have been modified. Um, and so the, the organism can continue to maintain its cell wall and, and not basically fall apart. And so um, we've seen all sorts of different types of mechanisms. We'll get into those later when we talk about uh, additional mechanisms. That's sort of the background, some history on, on when we first started seeing antibiotics and then um, resistance popping up not long after they were developed. You know, I, I like the story. And definitely I, I, as a graduate student, you know, I, I, I study it and definitely, you know, it's always, it's, it's fascinating. And I always, I don't know, and in all these types of stories, I always enjoy learning, right? It's like, what, sometimes, you know, in those times and, and the things, you know, all the discoveries and I don't know, it's always amazing what, what people do, right? With their intellect and how far, you know, the things that we can achieve. Um, and I remember, yeah, the cantaloupe and so, but yeah, you know, you mentioned the resistance and yeah, it's, it's, it's true as a tech, I definitely see it a lot. And then I do remember, you know, I feel like I haven't been in this field that long, um, you know, like 10 plus years, but I, I feel like I, I've seen a lot change. And I do remember before, you know, like you will barely get, you know, get like a KPC, for example. Oh, definitely. And and now, you know, we get so many. And then MRSA, MRSA is like, you know, it's like everywhere. It's like very normal in your cultures. You know, you see it in those wound cultures. Most of them are MRSA. Yeah, that was that was absolutely the case when I started when I first started in micro MRSA, we were not seeing a lot of it. Um, and we certainly weren't hearing about it as widely distributed in the community as it is now. I mean, it was really more of a hospital pathogen and we still didn't see it all that often. And and when we first started talking about carbapenem resistant organisms, that was like the worst case scenario. You know, we didn't have any, but it, we were on the lookout for one, you know, it was, it's just crazy, like you said, how quickly things have changed in a period of, you know, like 15-ish years. It's not actually that much time to have things develop so quickly. Yeah, no, and and yeah, I do remember, uh, you know, like you had that one and and it was just, I mean, that's just, it was a little bit of a pain when you had to do like the modified Hodge test and oh gosh, yeah, people in the lab dreaded that and it's like, oh, do I have it? And then, you know, do that and like, as of right now, I pretty much, you know, I've seen, you know, like Enterobacter cloakey, I've seen Citrobacter, Produce. So most of the Enterobacterialis, you know, with the KPC and, and, and a lot more like in all the ventures. So it's definitely something that's, that's been on the increase. Um, so as you were telling, as, as you were telling the story, you know, and you were talking about people dying from infection, you know, this is one of those things that when I was growing up, you know, like I used to like, you know, think, you know, what about like time travel? If I can be in another place in time or seeing these things. And nowadays, you know, like the microbiologist and me thinks that I will probably get very sick if I go back in time and, and to one of those historic moments, you know, like stay away from the water. My body probably couldn't, couldn't handle it. So I don't know, just something that came to mind as you were telling the story. I can't imagine. Um, well, it's funny, I, we say this now, we say like, I can't imagine living back then and not having options, but 
it's honestly where we're headed if we don't get stuff figured out. I mean, talk about this post-antibiotic era. It's very scary, right? That we, we might come up across infections that can't be managed by anything we have available to us. It's very, very scary. Uh, yes, you know, yes, it is. And, and so for your listeners out there, like I said, you know, this is what, you know, this is are the topics that we'll be talking about. I mean, I don't know if you read, if you heard, but definitely, you know, AMR, it's a, it's a global concern. You're seeing resistance. You know, there's a lot of, of antibiotics, you know, and then um, that it's been, you know, some, not, not like overused. And so, and then we see this increasing and sometimes, you know, at some point in time, I would like to eventually, as I go through this journey to maybe one day get more, because, you know, we do get a lot of requests sometimes, you know, even like, we you know, with minimal amount of organisms or or the organism is very susceptible. And I'm just going to be very quick about this because, you know, we're just getting started. But like, for example, like with cephidericals, you know, sometimes, you know, we get a very susceptible profile and then we get a lot of requests for it. So that's an assignment, but, uh, you know, definitely thank you for the, for the background, Andrea. So what's the current state now? So like I said, you know, it's interesting because things continue to change and, um, I think some of the the differences between where we were and where we are are really striking. So like you mentioned, and, and like we were talking about MRSA not really being all that prevalent, not really that long ago. Uh, now, you know, what used to be only a hospital pathogen uh, is now pretty much equally distributed between the community and hospital settings. You see people colonized with MRSA all the time. Uh, like you're saying, wound infections are often uh, infected with MRSA. It's really just all over the place. Uh, so we're seeing a lot of that kind of movement. Uh, we're seeing a lot happening in the gram-negative rods. It's pretty wild, very, very hard to keep up with. Um, the first plasmid-mediated beta-lactamase ever described in a gram-negative, so meaning uh, a mobile genetic element that could be uh, transferred between organisms. I kind of I think of it as like a baton in a relay race. I don't know if that's accurate or appropriate at all, but I just think of like a little bacteria, like handing a baton to another one and that's your plasmid. <laughs> it's just very uh, easy to transfer these resistance, uh, the genetic information for these resistance mechanisms. Uh, but the first one that was ever described was from an E. coli isolated from the blood of a Greek patient uh, named Terminera or Timonera, I don't know if I'm saying that right, in the 1960s. And it was called the TEM1 enzyme. And so for enzyme, and so for a while, that was the one that we really saw spreading. Uh, it was plasmid mediated. Uh, we hadn't really been seeing this kind of thing before. And so it quickly spread across the globe and it's been identified in other gram negative organisms. But then not long after that, we saw um, the appearance of an extended spectrum beta-lactamase called uh, mechanism called CTXM. This enzyme is called uh, CTXM. And so now this one is the most dominant across the world. So just another shift where, you know, we start with TEM1 and then CTXM sort of takes over. And um, the, the prevalence of these enzymes will definitely differ between geographic location. But I just think it's interesting to see how these things continue to move um, around the world uh, and what becomes more prevalent over, over other things. Um, we've also got, gosh, you know, a, a lot of uh, carbapenemase activity uh, popping up more so than like you said we saw even just a, a small amount of uh, years ago and the, I guess the the main take-home message from this overview episode is that lots and lots of different mechanisms out there and we'll, hopefully we'll go through all of them but very little 
uh, development of new antibiotics in the pipeline. And so that's one of the scarier things is we're seeing a lot of resistance popping up, seeing a lot of change in epidemiology over time with respect to resistance mechanisms, uh, but not a lot of aggressive antibiotic development. And there's a lot of reasons for that. It's pretty complicated, a lot that goes into it, but that is, um, that is a bit scary. And so I think if you look at the literature, there's lots of great literature out there right now on the state of AMR. I think one of my favorites most recently was the paper published in uh, The Lancet in January of 2022. I've mentioned this before in previous episodes, and I'm sure folks are fairly familiar with this publication now. I think this is a very, very popular one. It was um, written by uh, individuals on the Antimicrobial Resistance Collaborator Collaborators Group. And they estimated deaths and disability adjusted life years attributable to and associated with bacterial AMR for like 23 different pathogens and 88 pathogen drug combinations in over 204 countries and territories in 2019. So it was this really comprehensive look at very big data, uh, trying to just get a grasp on how urgent this AMR crisis is and how many uh, people are potentially dying from infections associated with directly related to antimicrobial resistance. And they concluded uh, that they estimated that there's about 4.95 million deaths associated with bacterial AMR in 2019, including 1.27 million that were directly attributable to bacterial AMR. So a major problem is causing a lot of deaths, particularly in lower middle income countries um, and is a, a really a big, a big problem. Yeah, indeed it is. And, you know, and touching back a little bit on what you said. Yeah, I think I remember when I was going through like an AMR class that, yeah, it's just like, I think it's like over maybe like in 50 years or something like that, that, that a new, like a new class of, of, of antibiotics hasn't been made. I mean, we, we come up with more stuff, but it tends to be like, you know, it's more combinations, you know, like a, like a Bilactam is inhibitor combination and things like that, but like a brand new drug and yeah and like, and like you said you know just many reasons out there uh we're not gonna really get into that today just today's just a, the overview um you know that's a good point though louise i would just add one more thing in there uh, i think that um it's scary that we don't have a lot of development of antibiotics but i think the good thing about that is that it's encouraged us to look outside of just antibi antimicrobial development and think about the other ways we might be able to slow down the progression of AMR. So that's why there's so much emphasis on like the One Health approach right now. So thinking about how we use antibiotics in animals and agriculture, farming, uh, water quality, things like that, um, and how organisms spread between people. Because if we can prevent the spread of infection, then obviously that's a good thing, but it's a good thing not only because you reduce the risk of death and morbidity, um, but you also reduce the risk of, of someone acquiring an organism that could become drug resistant and then passing it on to someone else. Um, so thinking more about like infection prevention and control and how antibiotics are getting used, not only in humans, but in every other component of life, essentially the food that we eat, the places we live, um, that's all become really, really uh, important and impressing, I think, front of mind for all of us right now. Yeah, and you know that brought to mind about with you know with sometimes you know with the overuse of of antibiotics. And I I think I spoke to this uh, to a guest before, but I do remember like me me growing up in in Puerto Rico. Like I do remember like everyone 
knew someone that always had access to antibiotics. And it's like, you know, you start feeling something, oh, you know, just take, you know, penicillin and it'll take this. And then, you know, you start feeling better, you stop and, and that's it. Yeah. And people don't realize, you know, what you're doing when, you know, when you're doing that, but it's just, it's a very common practice. That is, that's such a good point. There's a ton of literature on this as well. The unrestricted uh, use of antibiotics in other countries, right? Like where there's perhaps maybe not a stewardship structure, or it's just really easy to get your hands on things. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe we do an episode on that too, because there's a lot of cultural components that go into that as well, right? Um, and lack of infrastructure or resources for various things that may lead to that behavior. Uh, but it's a huge problem, the unrestricted use of of some of these antibiotics elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, it is. Sometimes, you know, it made me as I got older and it's just, you know, it made me cringe a little bit and it's like, oh, oh, you're not feeling well. Oh, don't worry. You know, I'll talk to the pharmacist and, <laughs> and I'll get you some, no, I don't want that. So just, yeah. So definitely, yeah, it's, it's, it's scary. Um, so, you know, we have, we're bringing light into this, you know, for and telling the audience. So as far as, you know, what's, what's being done, you know, I, I got ahead of myself a little bit when I started soapboxing a few minutes ago, but I, there's a lot of global effort happening uh, right now dedicated towards trying to slow down AMR. It's a lot of it's focused on the things I've already mentioned. So um, things like infection prevention and control, these would include both community-based efforts, uh, particularly in lower middle income countries. Some of those Louise have to do with behavior change around prescribing, unrestricted prescribing. Um, you know, in some of those areas, it's really challenging because there's limited access to diagnostic testing. And so they mentioned that in the Lancet paper uh, that there's not infrastructure for diagnostic testing that can confirm, you know, what's causing an infection. And so sometimes uh, things are just given uh, you know, just to, to treat the patient because they're very ill, but they, you know, they don't really know what they're treating. Um, some, you know, although there's a lot of work, I think a lot of people might argue that it's not enough. Some of the tasks that are being worked on are perhaps maybe a little easier to tackle than others. So, you know, maybe getting in there and, and working on prescribing in another country uh, is challenging, but making sure everyone has access to clean water feels almost impossible sometimes. Um, and, you know, things like that are really important. You know, as long as there's no access to clean water in some areas, this will persistently be a problem. And so some of the approaches are actually very public health focused and very, um, very, very challenging, but really top initiatives uh, that should probably be addressed, but are very, very hard to address. Um, also thinking about there's a lot of uh, organizations working on and thinking about preventing infections through the use of vaccination. So this is important because I think, you know, maybe vaccination doesn't seem like it's directly related to AMR when you first think about it, but it absolutely is. Uh, you know, we think a lot about patients that get maybe a secondary bacterial pneumonia because they got influenza and then that pneumonia is caused by a drug resistant organism where they get antibiotics for that. And it encourages the development of drug resistance or uh, in general, you know, getting sick and then having uh, 
you know, in a suppressed maybe immune system and, and acquiring other infections, or even just getting uh, infections with things like streptococcus pneumoniae, which there is a vaccine for. Um, and actually, you know, there's um, a lot of deaths globally were associated with streptococcus pneumoniae uh, in that Lancet study. So, you know, using vaccines when we have them for organisms uh, that could potentially become resistant to antimicrobials or, you know, potentially preventing viral illness that could uh, either exacerbate or, or lead to secondary bacterial infections that may get antibiotics uh, directed towards them. Those things are all really, really important. Um, you know, thinking about reducing exposure to antibiotics unrelated to treating human disease. So like I said, in farming, uh, in, in all of our food, antimicrobial stewardship in the hospital setting, which I think particularly in the U.S. we've gotten quite good at. Uh, in a lot of places, but where the challenge really exists, I think now is thinking about reducing antimicrobial use or, or bringing it back a little bit in the outpatient setting. So perhaps you have more resources to really make this a success in the hospital setting where you've got uh, the patient is in-house, you've got contact with them pretty consistently, you've got a team of uh, hopefully, you know, educated and informed individuals working on stewardship initiatives, whereas out in the community, uh, it's a whole nother ball game, right? You've got people coming into urgent cares, uh, people wanting antibiotics for viral illness because they just want to feel better and they think that's going to help. Uh, challenges around behavior and communication and then losing track of a patient and not knowing if they're going to come back or if you're going to see them again. What does the follow-up look like? Those things are really, really challenging. Um, and then finally, a lot of groups working on investment in the antibiotic pipeline, although we do know that this, like we said, is pretty slow. That might also involve improving access to second line antibiotics in locations without widespread access. So there's discussion around, um, you know, if there's an area that maybe doesn't have access to the best drug, can they get access to second line antibiotics? You know, it doesn't have to be uh, either the best case scenario or the worst case scenario are there alternative options that might help slow down the development of resistance that include using something like a, a second line agent? Uh, but ultimately everything should be approached with a, a One Health approach, which I think is, is really coming around. People are really starting to handle AMR work in this way. Um, and then I guess the final thing that I'm seeing a lot of is creative uses of uh, big data for things like AMR surveillance or understanding epidemiology and trends over time so that we can try to get ahead of some of these things and, and maybe guide therapy more appropriately or try to you know prevent spread and uh, detect these things a bit earlier so we can you know prevent prevent any acquisition of of nasty resistant bugs. Yeah indeed and definitely very important you know to have some yeah some communication between all these parts and yeah and education which is you know it's very important. You know, you mentioned as you were, uh, you know, talking about what's being done and, and and you mentioned, you know, the clean water that sometimes, you know, sometimes I maybe hear, you know, we don't think about much, you know, here in the United States, you know, it's, you know, we don't have any issues, but that's not the same for other parts of the world. And you mentioned, you know, with the antibiotics as, and that's something that I never thought about it before. And now, you know, with the podcast and listening to more people and stuff, yeah, you know, I, it's, I heard all the you know, let's say all the drugs that we have here that we have access to, it's not the same from other countries. And, you know, they definitely, you know, are working with less. So it makes it challenging. It does. And I think we should always try to keep equity in mind when we talk about things like this. It's 
we have access to a lot of things here and we are fortunate in that way, although we do have our own challenges, you know, associated with antimicrobial resistance, especially since we are big users of drugs and, you know, antimicrobial therapies and the healthcare system as a whole and tools, you know, we use these things a lot. Um, I think that it's always important to have in mind the ways the world, you know, globally, how people of the world contribute to the problem of AMR um, and how to think about directing resources towards fighting it, right? It's that idea again of no one place being completely immune to disaster. We saw this with COVID-19. We will see this again with any other pandemic that comes our way is that just because something is happening outside of your country doesn't mean it won't eventually get here. And so trying to mitigate uh, AMR related challenges in other countries is a good thing to do for global health, including our own country here in the, in the United States. So, um, you know, making sure folks are vaccinated, making sure there's access to antimicrobials that may be a better option. I can't tell you how many times I've been in a conversation with a colleague uh, who's elsewhere in the world. And I'm just, you know, I'll say something about like, oh, well, did they switch to this antibiotic? And they're like, we don't even have that here. That's not even an option here. Um, I'm just so used to, you know, saying, oh, we've got XYZ, we should switch to XYZ <laughs> antibiotic. But like you said, I mean, that may not even be available in other places. So just thinking a lot about how to um, lessen the risk of, of development of AMR everywhere is really important. And um, I agree. You know, we're definitely, the world's definitely very connected now. And like we say, you know, we, we saw it with COVID and it just, with all the travel and so it's just, you know, things can spread quickly. So yeah, it's definitely uh, a global concern. Do you have anything else, Andrea? No, I think that's a good intro. Right? Yeah, I think it, we hit the main points and... Yeah. Sounds a little disastrous, I think, but everything's going to be okay. We're going <laughs> to... <laughs> We're going to work through this together, everybody. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So uh, for you, the audience, you know, just I hope you enjoy this and definitely uh, listen to it. Always, you know, if you have any questions, any feedback, you know, I mentioned social media, uh, the email. But like I mentioned before, I think one of the best things that we can start doing is going over the different classes. Um, so I was thinking, Andrea, what about... Let's say, shall we do the beta lactams? Yeah, let's let's do it. I think that's a great place to start. Probably the most popular, right? Who yes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so, sounds like a plan. So stay tuned. Can't wait. And that, my dear audience. It's the end of this episode. I hope you enjoy this upcoming AMR series for antimicrobial anti resistance. As always, I enjoy bringing this information with you. So this will be between our regular episodes, but this is very important material that we need to know for our jobs. And in the spirit of Let's Talk Micro, we are just making it simple, so really breaking it down so you can learn at your pace. And I am so happy that Dr. Andrea Princey is joining me on this journey. I am excited, and I think you should be as well. 
I am really excited about finally breaking down this material. So please, continue bringing that passion to what you do. It's so important. We do such great work. So, as always, stay motivated, stay safe, and of course, continue talking micro. Continue talking micro. Until the next time. Bye.